Ja, warum? sounds of peaches and herb. Does it feel good, T, to be reunited? I just feel so silky to these sounds of the great peaches and herb, right? I mean, top top five band of all time, peaches and herb. I mean, is that is that going too far with it? It's actually not my favorite version of that song. I'm sure you've seen it many times. It's one of those clips I check in with many, you know, a few times a year. But um, Jefferson and Faith No More did their first show back. And they opened with Reunited by Peaches and Herb. (laughs) Almost like a a dead letter version of it. And Patton walked out on stage with a cane. And he's like pretending to be an old man. And he just like beautifully sings. Oh yeah. Reunited. That was always the great bit about, we talked about it in the faith and more episode a long time ago was that Mike Patton has this beautiful, incredible powerhouse operatic voice, you know, yet he just, everything's a goof to him. Everything's a bit, you know, but, uh, it is great to be reunited. Now back the rumors of, uh, two twins in an album's death have been, uh, grossly exaggerated. I think, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The rumor mill was really hot. I think TMZ covered it. If I, Speaking of death, man, I, I got right. I got a, not to, not to downer things, by the way, uh, you know, you know, the band Christian death, there's a yeah. band called Christian death. <laughs> yeah. That's maybe one of the like greatest, most awful, just whatever, uh, band names of all. T- I mean, Christian death. You're, you're, it's almost like naming your band, like, uh, like people with blonde hair death, you know, just like if you fall under this category of people, you should just die. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> I think metal band names in general, you know, I, I've, yeah, uh, gosh, it's been a while since we had a chance to catch up about stuff, but I, I revealed to my, uh, some of my coworkers that I work with some members of my team that, that when I'm sitting working with my headphones on that a lot of times I'm actually listening to cannibal corpse. Right. And they never heard cannibal corpse. Right. And so now it's become a thing in our department about cannibal corpse. (laughs) And you just think about the band name is just, I mean, cannibal corpse. Last night I went through, I was into like a, you know, like a deep um, YouTube dive on what's in my bag from Amoeba records. Cause there's, there's like a whole year of those that I'm not caught up on. 
And there was recently one, except for the stupid ones where people are doing it from their house. Like, oh yeah, yeah, you know. the home edition. Give me a break. Yeah, it's so dumb. But there's a new a new metal band that actually I might really really get into. Their influences were incredible, and th- their name is Blood Incantation. <laughs> like, what a great yeah. metal name, Blood yeah. Incantation. Yeah, death, death. What's the one about cows? Um, cattle decapitation. Cattle. Cattle decapitation, right. You and know. you know I'm a big fan of theirs. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, hilarious. But anyway, speaking of death, um, super, super bummed. This really isn't music. And granted, we've learned more often than not that this shouldn't be a sports show based on our horrid predictions of certain things. But Coach Mike Leach dying. I'm very sad about this. Like, I almost... um you know, like doing this today is actually helping my spirits a little bit because I loved that guy. I thought he was not just important for college football and for sport, but an important personality, you know, was always himself, even when it was a little left of center and unorthodox. And speaking of going in a YouTube spiral, I mean, you could just look up Mike Leach clips and spend hours you know, cause he was such an entertaining guy, such a, such a lovely guy. And so, you know, I'm going to be me, especially in that profession where you have to like, almost be like half coach, half politician all the time. He well, was you're, always you're, you're working being, for public universities, you know, it's yeah, like, right. there's always pressure and, to and academia and to, yeah, to be a certain way or believe certain things, whatever it is. And like, he just always was so true to just being kind of a goofball and and a, obviously a very innovative coach and all that, but I'm very bummed about it, buddy. Remember too, that um, we were both huge college football fans, but well, not lately, but yeah. <laughs> actually you always... the, the fighting Jayhawks going to a bowl game and I'm going, it, it's in Memphis, the, the Liberty bowl. So you're going to have to give go... us a report on your trip to Graceland. We're going to go see Graceland. Yep. I'm going to go with Mrs. Tof. We're going to visit Graceland. We're going to, uh, consume a few beverages and we're going to celebrate win or lose with a bunch of Arkansas people. Like, I mean, Razorbacks. How, great, how great is that? By the way, the state of Arkansas, like we're going to be able to see it from like Beale street. It's like, apparently I didn't even realize this, but it's like right on the other side of the river. So we're probably going to be outnumbered by the uh, hogs, but uh, don't care. Cause I've heard they're a lot of fun. You know? Yeah. You'll have a great time. It'll be super fun. I know Mike Leach was kind of a, a guy you always rooted for, you know, Washington, oh, he was yeah. at Washington state. And so, you know, it's, it's, did anybody not root for him? I mean, if it, he, Mike Leach was one of those guys, if you didn't like him, there was like, honestly, something wrong with you. Like how yeah. could anybody, even people that are like insane one direction or the other or everything in between, I kind of feel like he was a guy that everybody liked and everybody pulled for like, did anybody ever really thoroughly enjoy watching Mike Leach lose, which he lost plenty of games, but I don't know that he was a guy like he's probably the only coach that everybody, especially in sec type college football settings in some of the areas, you know, some of the places that he coached Texas, et cetera. He seemed like he was one of those guys that everybody could agree on. You know, if you understand, you know, the, uh, the greatness of honesty and, you have a sense of humor and you kind of understand that yeah. against the grain is a good thing. Then, then yeah, I think everybody like you talk often about, I mean, one of your mantras has always been not taking yourself too seriously in this life. And 
Uh, to me, he epitomized that. I think he was an important figure. I agree. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, I feel I mean, like you don't. I feel like you're not go- going there with me right now. Are, are you, you know, did, did you secretly hate him or something? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. But but I would say his death is probably making, it's probably having a more profound impact on you than it is on me. To me, it's just relish the day, right? I mean, geez, 61 years old, not that old. And just, you just never know, right? So hmm. I guess that's my takeaway. That's why it's good that we're reunited, you know? Because long after we're gone, people could still hear from us. You're on two twins in an album, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Do you think people listen to this when we're dead? Can I have that watch when you are dead? <laughs> <laughs> As we're reunited here, I think it's a perfect album to kind of restart the show with. Because it's something that you and I both lived through, lived, live. 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 It's a really interesting band and a very interesting album if you look at what came after. I think that going through the record is going to be fun. Everything. How about everything that came after? (laughs) Right, right. And we'll talk a little bit about a little bit about peaking. You know, what does it mean to peak? You know, maybe Mike Leach's peak was when he was at Washington State or at Texas Tech. I think we all have uh, peaks that we hit. I think Mike Leach's peak was the fat little girlfriend speech. Yeah, probably. That was Mike Leach's peak. Probably. When he, when he told all those guys that they cared more about their fat little girlfriends than they did football, that, that was, that may have been apex Mike Leach right there. I would argue with his post-game speech after they won when he just chewed the team out. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite line is, Michael Crabtree made that play. You didn't make that play. Michael Crabtree. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Whatever he says. Just, yeah. just giving all the players such a hard time for being happy and celebrating. And they, they won. Play that well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. Great. Great. Exactly. But But I think that, you know, sometimes you can argue when a band or any entity hit its peak, I think with lives throwing copper, it, it, there's like no argument in a world where nobody can agree on hundred percent of anything. I do think that everyone could agree with 100% metaphysical certainty that live throwing copper is the peak of the band live creatively, commercially. There was a time, albeit very brief. There was a time when I think live was the best band in the world. And again, very brief, but you and I were there for this moment. And uh, we'll definitely cover that when we get into wonder stories, but we can't get wondrous with our stories until we find out. And T we've had some time to dig into some records. Boy, if you and I probably spent quite a bit of money in the last couple of months, we could do a whole show on round and round. I think right now we really could with all the new releases that have come out. So Let's take episode at a, what number are we in T? I don't even know. You're always the number uh, guy. God, I don't even know either. Oh, didn't we, is this 81? Should I make up a number? Yeah. 81. 81. I think it's Sounds right. Well, let's take this episode <laughs> round and round. All right, T, three albums. That you've been listening to since we last reunited. This will give you a chance to rest your vibe. We, you and I both 
have Michigan. It's almost winter voice right now. Like we're both scratchy, you know? Yeah, completely. So, <laughs> so hey, Blinker the Star, one of my all-time favorite groups, new album. You know, I think they're pretty much, well, he, Jordan, Jordan, Jordan Zardonsky, um, who pretty much is Blinker the Star. You know, they played a live show a couple of years ago. Um, they've mostly been putting out their material digitally, but they've also been putting out some vinyl too. And um, hopefully we continue to see sort of that back catalog and some reissues and those things. But Love Oblast is the most recent record. And, you know, it's hard to point to a bad Blinker the Star effort. There have been a few that are better than others. So good record. The second, man, you know, I kind of, uh, you know, the band AFI, kind of part of that emo thing. Yeah, we've talked about them before. I think you've gone round and round with them. Yeah, good yeah. band. And I, I love the guy's voice. So I realized recently, probably on some Wikipedia, you know, adventure, that this guy has a side project. He actually has two. He has one that was more of a, I would call it more of like a power pop kind of thing. And then another that's um, synth electronica driven, but very synth heavy. And, uh, and I was like, Ooh, that voice over something that's sort of more synth pop based, like sign me up. It's called black audio B L A Q K. So it's great to spell something so that it makes it more difficult for people to find. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, good marketing decision. Yeah. <laughs> But I'm sure there's some artistic reason for doing it. But they've put out five or six records, and man, they're they're good. They're good. It's almost um, kind of takes you in sort of a little bit of a erasure direction. You know, maybe a little bit of Depeche Mode, OMD, New Wave. You know, that sort of thing. But with this voice that I really like. So, uh, the, one of the albums I think the one I find myself listening to the most is Material. Nice, tight, short songs, you know, very, just very synth pop oriented and uh, really enjoying it. So always good to discover something new yet familiar. And uh, speaking of familiar, I haven't really listened to this much, but I'm going to be digging into the new album by The Cult. Yes, they're still doing it. They're still doing it. Under the Midnight Sun is their uh, most recent release. I'm not sure if it's good or not, but I do love me some cult particularly that unheralded underrated self-titled album from 1993 or whatever it was with the like antelope or whatever it is on the cover one of my favorite covers of all time where the cult like went grunge you know yeah i i, I love that album dude i i love i have always loved that album and i never understood why no one else liked it produced by bob rock if i remember right it was yes indeed Yes, indeed. So that is what is uh, round and round for me, buddy. What do you got? First and foremost, and you're going to love this, is one of like six new albums from my good friend and your arch enemy, Mr. Ryan Adams. Oh, great. Who I went and saw last week in Detroit. Did you take a pillow? Amazing. God, it, you all, dude, I was telling Peef, you know, listener Peef, who of course went. He likes to be bored by Ryan Adams too, doesn't he? Right. I, <laughs> actually, it was a bunch of listeners. Peef Chili. Uh, Chili likes that? Oh, boy. Peef Chili, LaRue, and Aaron. We all went. 
And I'm it was surprised, I'm surprised to hear Chili's into that. I thought he was I thought he was a better person than that. Oh, stop it. Stop. Come on. And it was just Ryan Adams solo too. Uh, you would have been in such hell. I told Pete just I him. Like, yeah, I, I said oh, T would be in such hell at this, but it was amazing. It was so good. He just played and talked and it was like sitting in his living room. But anyway, he, he put out I literally I think he's put out five. No, actually, I think six albums this year. The, the kind of highlight of them, though, is FM. That's actually the album he's sort of touring. He's put out, he's put out six albums this year? Yes. Yes. And that's a good thing? Like, Yes. Isn't that, I don't know, isn't that a bit much? FM spread, is the latest effort. Shouldn't it's, you spread the wealth a little bit, you know? I don't know. One of these you albums is... You talk about double album syndrome. What about six albums in a year syndrome? You know, one of his new albums is FM and it is amazing. It's kind of heavy, kind of rocking songwriting is as, you know, thoughtful and introspective as all of his work. And I've been enjoying it immensely, no matter what you say. Other new albums, you know, there's so many T, but I think the new album from Devin Townsend, this is called Light Work. Now we're talking. And I bought the box set of it, which actually comes with a second album called Night Work. So I don't know what that's all about. I haven't dove into that one yet, but Light Work is very good. It's a little bit more of the commercial side of Heavy Devi. And then lastly is, of course, something I'm a band that I'm always excited for a new, new release for, and that is The End So Far from Slipknot. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a top Slipknot record. Uh, it's got this cool opening track that's just so different for anything you expect. And then they just go right into the aerial assault that you expect from these masked dudes led by Corey Taylor. But I think it's another tremendous Slipknot album. I don't, I don't know what you think. Yeah, I like it. I, I That is another one. That is one that I indeed purchased and uh, I like it so far. Okay, listen, I'm not going to let you off the hook here. You taught me the phrase double album syndrome. and it's a it makes perfect sense. How can you put out six albums in a year and forget my whole Ryan Adams thing and have that be productive? If you believe in double album syndrome, isn't there a six albums in a year syndrome element to this? Well, please explain. He's incredibly prolific. He is. And you got to remember, dude, two years of no touring, like what else are these guys going to do? And he's got a home studio his Paxam studio. And he just apparently goes in there every day and records. And one of them is a cover album of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. One of them. It's right. Really cool. So now I'm starting to think maybe you're in a cult because, because <laughs> yeah. you're just defending this to the T uh, all I'm, all I'm asking is, isn't that a little much? If there's, if you can oversaturate a double album, a double LP every few years, how is six albums in that period of time not oversaturation? Please explain. I, I, I'm happy to. I think that if you look at it in terms of bands, it would be like complete oversaturation because you would know that the quality couldn't be there because it takes a band long enough to develop songs and you know produce an album and all those sort of things. You're talking about a guy by himself. I mean, he, he doesn't rely on anybody else. I think three of the six albums are him acoustic. And so, I mean, again, like what else are you going to do when you're not to, this is his first tour since like 2018. So 
I, I think it's awesome. I think it's, it's just a ton of output. You could pick and choose what you like. And, um, I don't know, dude, you know, I'm not, I'm all in, but listen, um, I'm super biased, man. I love the guy. So one of our listeners could please send me an email, uh, or a tweet or anything. And, um, and agree with you connect me with somebody (laughs) who is an expert in the field of deprogramming or, you know, you know how it is. People get, people get wrapped up into this stuff and then, and then they don't know any different. And and it's tough. It's tough to watch someone you love get sort of sucked into these sort of cults and these this mentality. And this it's really a, a form of programming. So if anybody could help me, um, you can remain anonymous. It's fine. But um, my brother needs help. He needs help. He's, this Ryan Adams thing has really gotten to a point where I, as his identical twin brother, am rather concerned. Thank you. Okay. Talk about somebody who I think did get deprogrammed after the success of an album called Throwing Copper. And we will do that as we get into those nerdy deets done dirt cheap. You want some dirty deets? Yeah! You want some dirty deets? Contrary to many, many, many opinions in the year 1994, Throwing Copper was the, not second, the third. Album from Alive was released on April 26th of 1994. Count me in on that. I thought it was their second. Interesting. It was their third. The first one was like, like, I think just kind of an indie release. It's released on Radioactive Records, which is synonymous with some pretty interesting work of the 1990s. This name that just seems to continuously pop up on our podcast as producer, Jerry Harrison, who of course was of the Talking Heads really underrated producer and I think played a key role in the development of, of these songs in this album and clearly brought out something in live that was better than live would actually even go on to be the the members of live are important to discuss when you talk about this version, because this is the band. This is live, the band, the one that we should all remember them for after this, things would start going haywire with personnel and people in people out. But the key to it all and the kind of remaining standing member of live is Ed Kowalczyk. T, please take both hands, put them up in the air for me right now. Show me your hands. Are we both doing something? All I want you to do right now is spell Kowalczyk. Oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, K-O-W-A-L-C-Z-Y-K. You're a true live fan for knowing that. Yes, you're correct. You yes. That's really good. <laughs> That was really career. good. Career. Yes. I don't even know what I said. I blacked out the whole time. Many a teenager, including young nubs and T, uh, spent lots of time trying to figure out how to pronounce his last name. It was Ed Kowalczyk. Vocalist, guitarist, at least he played guitar when the band was still cool. And then he just kind of did what Collective Soul did too. Lead singer became like Mr. Singer guy and band seemed to change at that point. Chad Taylor on guitar, key part of the band, Patrick Dahlheimer on bass, and a drummer that I found very underrated in the 90s, a guy that was really underappreciated, Chad Gracie. Yeah, good call. Um, for sure, the drummer, always wore the backwards hat. A really powerful drummer, big part of their sound. That was the core lineup of live here on Throwing Copper. Five singles, none of which 
really sound like singles. I'd say one. And that was the first one selling the drama, which was released uh, really shortly before the record came out, actually a couple months before. The rest are a little less obvious. I Alone was released second. Lightning Crashes, which actually became probably the most notorious, I would say probably most popular song on the album, certainly from an MTV perspective, was the third single. All Over You is fourth. And lastly, a, a completely unconventional single, and that is the closing white discussion. Like I said, selling the drama and lightning crashes, I think were the two songs that really did well. I Alone was, was a huge hit too. Yeah. What you're looking at is multiple hits, huge radio presence, lots and lots of MTV exposure, resulting in a record that live would just never repeat in terms of popularity. Top the charts in Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and the US Billboard 200. It, of course, was number one. How could it not be with how popular it was? And in terms of sales, this record went eight times platinum in the UST. Eight million copies. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those CDs that just everybody had, right? Everybody, I mean, yeah. everybody yeah, had. For it. sure. For, for sure. sure. I'm excited to talk about the Wonder Stories because, you know, Live was an important band for us. And we both have a couple unique memories from this group. So I think we should do it to you with the wonder stories. Well, we already told the story, the wonder story of the, perhaps the greatest reuniting in our history, <laughs> right, which right. was when we were reunited at Woodstock 94 after basically an entire day of um, not really sure if you were going to make it back to the campsite or not. Neither so we told I. that. Yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. We told that story in the, Ooh, do you remember which episode? episode? That, uh, um, um, oh, wait a minute. Just give me a second. Uh, Two twins in an album history here. Right. Right. Um, Keep working yeah. through it. Keep working through it. You'll get um, there. Um, do you want a hint? Yeah. It's the only band on Friday that we watched together. That means they played last. Um, oh, the Violent Femmes? Yeah, it was your episode, too. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Violent Femmes. Yeah, 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 right. Because neither of us really even liked them that much. But no. Yeah. So weird that they closed Woodstock. It but was really weird. Actually, you know, live was go back and listen to the retelling of the full saga. The band that I sort of wandered off which is so dumb i mean how stupid i was 14 years old that i sort of wandered off into this abyss of woodstock and was then you know missing for you know like 10 hours it was mostly because live was playing and uh i could hear they opened with iris off this record and i could hear it and it was like all right well i'm just gonna go I think you were like being a good guy and like helping with the tent. And, you know, our mom was like, yeah, you mean like you know. setting up the camp? Yeah. And, and I yes, was just being kind of a dick and just left because I wanted to go see live. So anyway, you can sort of blame, I think more so than me, you can really blame live for, for that. You know, they, they sort of, this band was like a magnet when you were 14 in 1994. So they just, it was like a force field couldn't stop morphing toward what was happening, but they were huge. They were huge. And they were, um, 
probably one of the better main stage bands that day. And this was at a time where the band was really cooking. We also saw them. Um, I think you were there. Tell me, correct me if you weren't at the Hill Auditorium, which is a smaller theater in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And um, it was live and they were playing with Sponge, who I think was from Detroit and had yep. that one big hit song. Rotting uh, Pinata and Plowed. 16 Candles. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Plowed was big. And then, yeah, that crappy yeah. song. Plowed is a jam. And then a band that I was thrilled to see, which was Love Spit Love, you know, fronted by uh, Richard Butler of the Psychedelic First. So, I mean, pretty solid lineup in 1994. Um, and I remember Love Spit Love was like almost as good as live, really, in my opinion. But what do I know? Um, so that was another. So we, we kind of got two um, at bats with live right around that time you know, where they were touring Throwing Copper, one in a large festival setting and one in a smaller sort of theater college town setting. It felt like this band exploded, but it was actually a bit more gradual. You know, I mean, to your point, they did have a major label record before this. And th that's also part of what's kind of funny. So most people heard them for the first time with Throwing Copper, mostly because of the radio, right? Or because of MTV. And they were just huge there. And Throwing Copper, you listened to it and you kind of realized at the time, just like we realize now, that it's a pretty special album worth talking about. And so you're like, oh, man, I'm going to go out. I'm going to run out and grab the album that preceded this, Mental Jewelry, because it's probably really good. And then you pop in Mental Jewelry and it's like, hmm, not so good. Not so good, Al. I mean, it was very like... Really very thin, different. yeah. Then it was very, yeah, more sort of like bohemian. It was, it was very, it was very early '90s, pre, you know, kind of rock grunge. Whereas throwing copper was a bit more raw, a bit more stripped down and more simple. Which this band was at its best when it kept it simple, which it didn't know how to do very well for the long term. But mental jewelry was one that was, um, was very different. You know, sometimes when you discovered a band and then you're like oh i'm gonna listen to their old stuff you're excited i remember being extremely unexcited by the time uh mental jewelry was complete it was kind of like oh i don't know if i'm gonna listen to that much anymore let's put throwing copper back in you know and cleanse the palate you know so um and then of course i'm sure we'll talk about it but thereafter you kept waiting for them to put out something even in the same sentence as throwing copper and it not only did it not happen, it never even really came that close to happening. You know I mean? They had a, a few songs here and there that were okay, but as far as a collective album and you could tell, uh, you know, how much Ed and whoever else had sort of gotten, you know, they, they got to the point where they couldn't get out of their own way in terms of, you know, really purposefully not making another throwing copper like deal. And, the beauty of throwing copper is keeping it simple. And they certainly didn't do that ever again in any of their further efforts. So, you know, the, I always think of uh, kind of the uh, excitement around hearing the first album and then the disappointment after you actually listen to it. But I think you nailed it in that um, this was a great band. I mean, Ed was the face. He was the voice. I think he was the songwriter. 
or at least the lyricist, which is a whole nother story with this band. This guy's got some pretty weird lyrics when you, Oh, we'll get to that. Yeah. But, um, this was a very good band and you're right about, uh, the drummer. And I would say even just all of them collectively, if they could have found a way to sort of remain a band, which after at this time, once Ed became sort of an icon within the industry, um, I see how that was difficult, but, um, they were at this time, a very good collective, you know, uh, where every part was extremely important. Would have been interesting to see what, where this would have gone if that could have sustained, but but clearly it didn't. So, you know, you're right. Everybody kind of liked them. Everybody was into it, no matter what area of focus you had musically. Everyone seemed to agree on this one in a lot of ways. Kind of like Coach Mike Leach, you yeah, know. So, uh, so that's my wonder story. Now, what do you got, buddy? You can always tell that a, a band's, you know, kind of legacy or at least their ability to create a classic by. Like how many times have you purchased throwing copper in different formats? Like what I, I think I bought this album five times. You know, about original CD, I had a cassette that's two. Remember the red tray on the Correct. CD? Yeah. Correct. That was a and big then, deal. And then they didn't have the red tray anymore. And it was like, why don't you have the red tray? That was cool. Yeah. Right. I actually what I have here is sort of a prized possession. This is the original vinyl. They this is it was rare in nineteen ninety four to press an album on vinyl. And look at there, T. They did it on like a clear mint colored vinyl. And so this was very, very different for 1994. And it is a good relic. You know, I, I just think, think back to the first experiences with live. I think it was selling the drama on the radio. I remember hearing that on sort of 89X here in Detroit, alternative radio. As you got into the album, you just realized that there was something much deeper going on here. And the word deep is important when you talk about Ed Kowalczyk, because, you know, at his best, he was a very uh, thought-provoking and thoughtful songwriter, a guy who poured his heart and soul into what he did. And when it was good, it was really good. Even after uh, Throwing Copper, you know, I think that uh, Freaks is a terrific song of Secret mm-hmm. Samadhi. I think Lakini's Juice is really good. Um, the Dolphins Cry, I think, is one of the best songs of that decade. Secret Samadhi following is one of the all-time huh moments in terms of follow-up albums. You know, I remember sort of taking that home and putting it on and being like, I don't get this. You know, that was, that was more disappointing than mental jewelry. Yeah. Yeah. Was- probably in some ways. It's one of the only bands T where we've talked a lot about that. We're not lyric guys. It's one of the only bands where the lyrics were actually so out there sometimes that it was like a distraction. Cause really, I just want my lyrics to be there to be functional and to right. not distract me. Right. Right. In the case of live, especially as the career went on, the lyrics became yeah. distracting. And I think yeah. it was Ed Kowalczyk just always trying to do too much to be too deep, yeah. to be too profound. And really it just always turned into kind of something that was a bit distracting. I well, think and really like in really um, overly like blunt, you know, like overly like part of the, what's cool about lyrics is when you can sort of be like a little vague and leave something to interpretation. I mean, he, this guy just like, he just said things so literally. And it was like, Jesus, you know, <laughs> I mean, like, couldn't, yeah. you, couldn't you metaphor that one or something? I mean, you know, so the yeah. greatest example to me of that is Lakini's juice with the whole, I went to the ladies room and 
wash the toilet or with the but grab the water from the toilet. It's just like, yeah. And there's yeah. another one where he's like, I puked and it stinks like beer. It's like, right. dude, like, yeah. Can, couldn't there a, maybe a better way to say that? Maybe a more interesting way to say that? I don't know. It's exactly. Weird. It's a great point. It's a great point that the lyrics often did distract you from the other things happening and that shouldn't happen. For sure. So I had this feeling like Ed Kowalczyk seemingly is just like a complete egomaniac. I mean, he went on to basically like break up live and then get it back together, but he's the only member. It's just very weird. I think Ed Kowalczyk in his mind thinks he's Ernest Hemingway, you know, Ernest Hemingway known for his deep and dark sometimes, you know, writings. So I don't know if you've heard about this game that's sweeping the nation, but right now we're going to partake a little bit. Nice. In a little game called Kowalczyk or Hemingway. <laughs> Start, the music, Let's... Start the music. Let's go. Ladies and gentlemen, here on Two Twins in an Album, welcome to another edition of Kowalczyk or Hemingway. <laughs> I'm your host, Nubs. Joining us today as our contestant is a young man who's very, very sad about the recent passing of a college football coach, yes. but he's still with us today Yes, and giving his perspective on the band live. And that is today's contestant. <laughs> that is today's, <laughs> that is today's contestant. None other than T. Boo. Hello, everybody. All right, this is good. This is good. I'm looking forward to this one. All right. See, I've got 10 lines, 10 writings. You tell me, was it Ed Kowalczyk who thinks he's Ernest Hemingway? Or is it actually the real Ernest Hemingway? (laughs) So whenever I play Jeopardy... The two categories I don't want to see are authors and poets. (laughs) So this is already a really shitty category for me, but let's do it. All right, see, I will simply read a line and you will tell me whether it's Kowalczyk or Hemingway. Are you ready? I'm ready. Oh, woman of the earth, maker of children who weep for love, maker of this birth. Is that Ed Kowalczyk or Ernest Hemingway? <laughs> this is already one of the best games you've ever done. Because um, I, because it's like a coin flip. Um, I, I'm going with Kowalczyk. You are correct. That was Ed Kowalczyk. Yes. <laughs> There's another line in in um, one of the songs off this album where he says something about Hitler. Right. He's like, my dear Hitler. So I'm like, whoa. <laughs> right. To our earlier point. Right, like, exactly. Oh, dear exactly. mother. What song is that from? Oh, you know what? I pulled these from all songs that are not in Throwing Copper. That one, I think oh, is, this is the, Run these to are the all Water. Thro- these are not Throwing Copper songs, right? No, no. Yeah, okay, okay, gotcha. I think Run that one is water. off Run to the Water, I think. Oh, boy. I think. <laughs> all right. Okay, ready? Here's number two. The world breaks everyone, and afterward, many are strong at the broken places. Hemingway. 
Because that actually makes sense. That is correct. That's Hemingway. Very nice. That's going to be, I think, my gauge is, does this somewhat make sense? Or is this totally like a lunatic rambling? And if, you know, if the latter, I'm going Kowalczyk. Okay, go ahead. Sounds good. Here's number three. I love you enough now. What do you want to do? Ruin me. Jesus. Um, Kowalczyk. That is Ernest Hemingway. Ah! I think it's from a farewell to arms. Dang it. It's okay. It's okay. Well, he was a pretty messed up dude, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, number four. Okay. An intelligent man is sometimes forced to be drunk to spend time with his fools. Hemingway. That's Hemingway, you're three of four. Yeah, I mean, that that just sounded like a poem. You know? Okay. All right, number five. Are you ready? Forever may not be long enough for my love. I have a will, but I'm lost inside your time. If you could. Hemingway. Kowalczyk. Damn it. Opening line of forever may not be long enough. What is that? Three and two? Have we done five? Three yeah. And two? Yep. Okay. You're three. You're three and two. You got three right out of five. You're doing very well. <sighs> I, I felt good about that one. Number six. I don't need proof when it comes to God and truth. I can see the sunset and I perceive. Kowalczyk. That's correct. That's from yes. Religious issues. He always had religious issues. Ooh, good call. Good call. Religious baggage. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. Probably still does. All right. But when you get the damned hurt, use it. Don't cheat with it. The damned hurt? Hemingway. I really thought I was going to get you on that one. It is Hemingway. Yes. That's a good guess. I, I, I thought I had you on that one. I can never remember that. White? Yes. <laughs> so what am I now? Five and two? I lost track. I think you're five and two. Five and two. Here is number eight. Are you doing well, T? Yeah. I'm pleased. Just want to make sure. I'm filled with pleasure. That there was nothing before. There has been nothing as good since. Hemingway. That's correct. 
That's Hemingway talking about Huckleberry Finn. I'm on a roll. You are rolling. On a roll. You are rolling. All right, team, number nine. This is not a black and white world. You can't afford to believe. I know the song. Oh, do you? Yeah. It's Kowalczyk. It's the first song on Secret Zombie, I think. I th- no, I think that one's from uh, Mental Jewelry. It's a crazy, m- messed up world, isn't that? Uh, Rattlesnake? Oh, that's Rat. No, this is not from Rattlesnake. Oh, okay. I think this one's from Track 3 on Mental Jewelry. It's called... Um, oh, I think you're right. Riverside? Yeah, some crappy song. Being Lies by the Riverside, maybe? Yeah. Seven right. and two. Seven and two. Tony, Here's the last get, one. You got to get me. You always get me on the last one. <laughs> Caught in your mystery, keep it angry. What is it? Caught in the mystery? Caught in your mystery, keep it angry. Um. Anyway. Some traditions just have to continue. I always get you on the last one. Ah! That is Kowalczyk from Mystery. <laughs> he did nice. great. He did great. Yeah. 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 Oh, I turn great. off that music. It's killing me. Well Jesus. done. Well played. Well played. And what is the moral of the game is that Ed Kowalczyk was no, no, no Hemingway. He was no Jack Kennedy. You know? <laughs> right. yeah. I knew Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway was a friend of mine. <laughs> T, you ready to drop that needle? Yeah, let's do it, baby. All right, let's go. Live throwing copper. Let's do it. Throwing copper contains, let's see, 12 tracks. I think 10 of them start off with just guitar and vocals, just guitar, drone sounds. I think only two of these tracks actually come in with like instrumentation. He he had a thing. They had a thing. Maybe Jerry Harrison contributed to where every song just had drama at the beginning, every single song, whether that's a little bend, whether that's some noise, just whatever. I think that was part of its thrill. I also think in hindsight, sometimes it's like, okay, guys, let's get the song going here. And uh, you could probably see this one either way. When you start throwing copper with, the dam at Otter Creek. Super unconventional opener, but actually an outstanding show opener because of the way that, you know, they may bring the lights down and the guitar would sort of fade in. And then once it kind of all hit, that's when all sort of hell would break loose. It's a song. It took me a little while to get into, but I, I really like damn out of Creek as an opener. I think it's really clever and really unique. I bet we did the same thing. I know I did the same thing that most 14 year olds did 
when you had this album, which is flipped to track two, <laughs> um, because the, track one is very atmospheric and very musical and, and, and very dynamic. So, you know, I didn't listen to this song a lot to, to be honest until, you know, a few years ago when you really start to kind of take this album top to bottom and figure out, you know, where the peaks and valleys are. And yeah, I think it's a really cool, um, very unique at the time opener. Now track one usually was a vehicle to get you to track two, which is always the obvious single. And it is here. One of the things we forgot to mention during wonder stories nub is we played this record start to finish acoustically in one of our acoustic sets. And one of the songs that was the most challenging was the Damn It Otter Creek, but it was also not that challenging because you're kind of easing everybody into it. So it was a little bit difficult to pull off some of the atmosphere elements and some of those jam elements with just acoustic and percussion, which is what we have. But that gave me an opportunity where you're kind of learning the album and learning how you can pull off the dynamics of this track one acoustically gave me an opportunity to listen to it a bunch and yeah went from kind of seeing it as uh you know many years ago something to sort of flip past to get to the sort of heart of the first half of the record because it gets pretty hot from here um but now i think it's an imperative element of chapter one of this record and probably one of the more dynamic elements of the album that's certainly worth getting through before you get to some of these things that are a bit more radio friendly. It's well said. I, I, I think the, th- yeah, many a fast forward button got worn off of CD players. Yeah. Uh, when, when this was first listened to, but I love songs that have dramatic openings. I do. Selling the drama is another one of the uh, songs that starts off with just vocals and guitar and eventually builds into more instrumentation. It was the song that really broke the band. And it's track two on Throwing Copper, selling the drama. Remember when they play the song live, I should say in concert with this band. Ed would really howl during that part. You know, Scott like that. And it was kind of cool. That one of the few variations they would do live that were different from the record that actually worked. But good job, Meister, on the clip. I think that middle is an important part of the song for sure. Aside from that, it's a it's a pop song, right? Well, you you hit it before I did. The middles on this record are enormous enormous every single that people are very familiar with and even more of the album tracks which there are plenty there's 14 total here so you're going to get you know plenty of album tracks even though there were a lot of singles the middle sections on throwing copper kill they're excellent and they're usually bass driven and and i would say rhythm section driven because usually the drumming elements change to some extent uh, the bass gets more involved as sort of the sort of lead blocker in what's happening. This is the first moment of many, and I'm sure we'll point them out, where you are realizing that the arrangements of these songs 
particularly when it comes to these middle eight or 16 sections are really outstanding. And I think that that's, I think this is a good song on its edges, but when you factor in that middle part, which does heighten things up a bit on a song that for the most part, uh, otherwise is pretty bouncy, it becomes a great tune. And I think it's another, it's one of the many examples we'll talk about where the middle section kind of carries it. I say the same thing for track three. A song that, you know, when I was 14 and 15, T, I was shocked this song was as big of a hit as it is, or as it was. And I'm still surprised. It's a very, very unconventional hit. I know we'll continue to use that word, but how does a song that starts like this become a radio hit? I guess it's the 90s, right? I Alone. Nerdy Deeds, I mentioned uh, Chad Gracie. He's playing with this nice swing, isn't he? I mean, that's part of this song, is it? It it swings in like a weird way, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's got an interesting rhythm. Let's do the middle section here. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I mean it. It has, uh, it does have an interesting swing to it. It's a very rhythmic song, and I think, I think the appeal of it, you know, per your per your question, is the build nature, right? Because you, you know, that certainly Jerry Harrison, you could tell he was going for dynamics, but not over the top. I mean, it's sort of like rhythm section and distortion based dynamics. This didn't take a lot of layering. This didn't take. I mean, there was enough energy in the composition itself and in the arrangements themselves. But what I just said about selling the, tra- the drama, put that on steroids. And that's what you got with I alone. The middle section of this is just, it's, it's almost, you know, epic uh, from, from the standpoint of, of nineties music. I mean, I think you play this and everybody kind of goes, Ooh, yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, the way it smooths out, you know, the way the bass carries it, the, the, the work on the bell, portion of the ride symbol that you're getting from um what's the drummer's name chad chad gracie yeah chad yeah um i think the same as anyone that's seen chad play you know he's, uh, <laughs> yeah. he's outstanding um but no it, you know it, it's um it's a really outstanding song nearly perfect in terms of its production and in terms of its arrangement and composition and it, it probably is the song off the record that has lived on the most. There were several singles and several that have done a good job of standing the test of time, but this is the one that you either see popping up a lot or you hear people when they point to moments on this album that have stuck with them well beyond in the decades that have followed. You know, I alone seems to be a strong point. This is where the album, I think, turns into something completely different. You know, the first three songs, all notable in their own right, two singles. I, again, another really against the grain song, but it's something that just kind of works. And that is Trek for Iris.
This is kind of when the lyrics start to get a little weird, isn't it? I, you know what, man? I don't. Other than the word placenta, I, I really don't pay much attention to the lyrics on this album because there are so many other dynamics taking place. I mean, the thing, this isn't, this is probably top half for me, but it's not one of my like favorites, but I do like the, the, the bigness of the sound. I mean, when you, when you really kind of like, again, quiet, loud, quiet, you've talked about it a ton. This epitomizes that, but you know, you've got this kind of swirling, you know, kind of light intro and then just comes in with just a bah, 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 bah. I mean it's cool there's something definitely you know cool about that and similar formula you're seeing here loud quiet loud rhythm section really carrying sort of the muscle of the thing and and I think it works and this is a, this is another great middle section when they get into that um part where again you're hearing Ed kind of howl and you're getting uh you know uh, Chad very active on the drums and I mean it's it's all working. So probably more of an album track. I was a little surprised they opened with this at Woodstock. They did not, if I remember correctly, open with this at the other shows or so maybe it was unique. They did that Damn It Otter Creek at the, at yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, maybe daytime set, whatever they wanted to sort of get, get the crowd kind of revved up. But uh, no, I mean, it's, it's a very well-known song because you're coming off of, you're sort of sandwiched in between two, pretty iconic singles. And then you've got to your point, probably the most well-known at the time following it. So it probably got the benefit. I think a lot of people know this song. I don't know how many people love it, but I think it's uh, important on the record in terms of its placement more so than anything else. Okay. It's time to talk about what, who would have ever guessed if you listen to this album before the commercial success, that this song would like sweep the nation. You know what I mean? It just doesn't make any sense. But it was the 90s. It was a different time. People had a little more patience. And I think this song uh, fit the zeitgeist of the 90s a lot more than it would in, let's say, 2022. A five minute and 25 second epic single known as Lightning Crashes. I have to admit, I never really got lightning crashes. Uh, you know, ending's cool. I do like the the stuff they're doing with vocals near the end is kind of cool. I mean, this song like was one of those life changers for some people. And I think it's an important part of the album, but certainly not in my top half. Um yeah, I mean I I I loved it and yeah, still love it. I think I don't know that it's aged as well as a couple of the other things on this record at the time though. I, I think, I think you nailed it. I think it, it did capture perfectly sort of the tone of, you know, this was a little bit more post kind of that initial run of grunge and things were smoothing out a little bit and things were leveling out a little bit to where I think emotionally this, 
I mean, whatever the lyrics are, doesn't matter. The whatever the 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 overall tone of this just really um, hit the mark. And it's a, I mean, it really is a good song, and and so simple. I mean, I can't even explain like guitar players or musicians understand those that aren't. It's 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 hard to explain how simple this is in terms of structure, in terms of chord progressions. I mean, it's like this is a riff, if you will, or a progression that you could literally play and pick up on your first day ever playing the guitar. And that's part of the beauty of it is the way they were able to create, um, again, without doing too much, but a, a very high level of atmosphere. We just played the middle section. And again, this is another song where the middle section is as memorable as the hook. And God, that just time after time on this record, that's the case. And I think that's what took a bunch of good songs and made them special. The way it builds, the way it's sort of climactic at the end, um, even the way it wraps up with just that simple bass and guitar line. It's the ultimate example of these guys keeping it simple, maintaining an appropriate level of passion without it becoming a parody of itself. And it produces, in my opinion, something that was a special song for a reason. I, I can agree with everything you said and still think it's melodramatic. I think that's what gets them. You know what it is to, to me? Lightning Crashes is, is live's Jeremy. It's everything you just said. You know, for, for Pearl Jam, Jeremy was, you know, their biggest commercial hit of the time. Very, very simple song. Anybody could play it. Had these builds, very, very emotional, very emotional. Had an accompanying video with sort of stunning imagery, right? The difference is, I think Jeremy was dramatic. I think that Lightning Crashes is melodramatic. Hmm. I think it, it teeter-totters a bit off the edge of just like a cool, dramatic presentation, musically and visually, into just a little bit something that, yeah. to your point, I don't think it aged tremendously well. Well, let me ask you this. What's more melodramatic, Lightning Crashes or Ryan Adams? Oh, jeez. Back to this again? Um, point is, sometimes melodramaticness works. Melodramaticism. However you say it. Ryan Adams does have more good albums than live does. Not the question. <laughs> I know, but it's the answer. <laughs> uh, that's a good point. But we'll conclude side one of, of the vinyl with uh, the little ditty known as Top. You know a band is on fire when their album track, which is sort of clearly is, still is incredibly catchy i mean that chorus that chorus is like hit potential i bet radioactive looked at top and said "Ooh, this one has potential because it lift me up do 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 i mean that's pop you know didn't this get some radio airplay i, th I thought it did it might um, have dude this was one of those albums where like they were yeah. pretty much playing everything yeah but it, right. it is one of the songs that starts off with a boom you know tune tune you don't have to wait five minutes for a guitar intro you know i never really liked this song until I played it. You know, once you, once you play it, like when we played it together and you sort of like figure out what the 
progressions are, what the chord movements are. Um, yeah, there are a couple songs, and this is one of them where it's like when you dissect them a little bit and when you play them, you're kind of like, oh, I get the sort of feel for this. You know, and I and I get the I mean, I, I don't understand how it wasn't a hit either. And I think this is another one where you listen to it now, it's tight, it's to the point. They don't screw around a lot with it. It's sub three minutes. And you're like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's a good middle sort of deeper cut album track. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan. Side two begins the way, as I've mentioned here on the podcast, that many songs that I have loved through the years start. And that is with Splat all over you. Chad Gracie, have yourself a day in the studio in the recording of All Over You. I talk about a drummer, like, just sort of carrying the song. I remember a few years back I was playing in a band, and they were trying to describe what they wanted the intro to be, and they said, do the splat intro, which, of course, <laughs> is just a ha on the snare. Um, yeah. Great song, Love All Over You. It was a single for a reason, but... This is the only middle section of the album that totally sucks. What? I'm letting this ride so that we can hear it. I Are you kidding? It. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. Let's here. Let's let's yeah. do it. Here yeah. it is. What are you talking about? That is awesome. <laughs> oh, it's just, it's cheap. It's cheap. What? <laughs> it's chromatic. And then they do the- it's 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 a total departure from this sort of like major key poppy vibe of the thing. It takes no, you in a different direction. Plops it's along. It's it's plundering. Oh, it's I could not disagree with you anymore. It's oh, I, it's one like- of the better middle sections on the record, and that says a lot. That's a high bar. Oh, it's just like, it, it's the most thoughtless, just like, let's do that. You know, mm. I, I think they stole it from somebody too. I, it just sounds like so unoriginal. And, and then they do, who'd they steal it from? Oh, well, I'm not saying specific. I'm just saying like, it just sounds like something they would just lift from somebody else. Just like, Hey, remember when, you know. I don't know. That's a Skinner ridiculous did the thing where they you, just drop it, drop down to a lower note, and if you can't point along. to where they lifted it from, you can't say it's lifted. Just feels very unoriginal, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And here's the other thing, T. One of the worst key changges in yeah. like rock music history. Is I agree. In this. With, I agree with what that. What the it's hell totally, were they thinking? It's totally unnecessary. I listen. I never liked this song. In fact, this was like a flipper for me. The the reason I hate the way he sings the verse, he's like, I like what? Yes, like he sounds I agree. stupid. I agree. It's like, dude, just sing. Like, what are you trying? Like, yeah, maybe I don't love this song. I don't- <laughs> yeah, I hate I hate his voice during the the verses. Now, a f- a few years back, I was you know half intoxicated at a bar, and there was a band, and they played this song, and I was like, eh, okay, like. You know, yeah, I get it now. 
right? So so I don't like hate it, but his voice during the verses is very irritating. And I think the middle section like kind of makes the song. I'm I'm like waiting the whole time to get there. So I'm I'm extremely surprised uh, that you don't like it. But hey, that's why we have a show. Track eight is a song that a lot of teenagers liked in 1994, but I don't think it had anything to do with that. It's a great song. I think it's just purely because it gave them an excuse to say shit. And that is shit town. It's funny because they, they choose this lyric that could never, ever, ever receive radio airplay or any commercial recognition. But it is far and away the poppiest song on the album. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's almost it's almost like Beatleish. I wish they wouldn't have done that. It's a yes. it's a, it's an awesome song. And by the way, are you do you hate that middle section too? You're gonna you're gonna piss on that one as well. I love that middle section. <laughs> okay, good. It, when um, I say it's not a great song, T, I just mean it's not groundbreaking, right? Like they're not they're not doing anything innovative or, but it's but but it's a very well constructed pop song. What I gets in the it. way is the dumb lyric. Yeah, I agree. I I love it. I I think it's got everything. In fact, the waltzy verse and then this sort of shift to a driving, you know, basic four four again, very simple, very very simple. This is like G, A, B minor. Like this is like as basic as it gets, but making it work and then introducing this phenomenal energy in that middle section, right? So I freaking love this song. It was one of my favorites on the album when it came out. I just, I don't, I mean, was it necessary to uh, use the vulgarity, you know, because I think this could have been a huge song for them, but you know, oh, well. All right, next up, you you hit a couple of the uh, more more kind of album tracks. I think easy to say. First one being TBD. This song is is built upon this moody, engaging baseline. I think it could have exploded more and earlier to be a little bit more effective. I like the mood that it sets, but to me, it just meanders a little bit, you know, a little too long. Yeah. I you know what? From an album standpoint, I I like the sequencing and I like, I mean, at some point you had to like slow this down. I mean, this thing. With the exception of lightning crashes, this thing is just packed with energy in a good way. But TBD, it's I mean, it's not that great of a song, but I do think it's important and well placed because you do need a breather. I mean, when you when you go through this thing top to bottom, which hopefully, you know, many of you will do after hearing this, uh, you know, this here episode. You get to the point where track nine is almost welcomed. It's like, okay, I need, I needed to just like level off and breathe a little. And considering where you're headed after this emotionally and dynamically, 
you know, I, I think it's well-placed, well-sequenced, and I'm, I'm glad it's on there. If it wasn't on there, it would almost feel, you'd almost be exhausted by the time you got to this point. It's a good call, T, on the sequence, because um, it is a well-sequenced album. I, I agree with you. I think, I think they did a nice job with that. Next up, as we kind of build towards the end of side two or the end of the CD, is Stage. do something up tempo and kind of punky it just dude i always pass this song up i mean unless i'm really looking for the full context not a fan you've brought a couple of nice uh terms to the podcast that are reoccurring nubs trademark terms and one of them is dumb rock and uh that's kind of what i think about stage it's dumb rock now again Imagine if you were going from all over you to shit town to this, like you're, you'd be like, guys, like you like your head would pop off. So again, I like that TBDs before this. I think it's dumb Rocky and next. There's some elements of dumb rock in the next song, but there was something engaging about this song. And I want to talk to you about it. Why did we like waitress so much? But the next track is waitress. For dumb rock, a song that's built around, yeah. I'm stage and waitress are kind of like, did those have to be on here? You know, <laughs> you know, a term that you learned in college that I always thought was hilarious. You would use this term to describe basically something that was unnecessary, something that should just be kind of ignored, something that just could kind of roll off somebody. You would describe stage and waitresses chatter that's right <laughs> nice yes yes big time chatter on on track 10 and track 11 doesn't doesn't seem particularly necessary i mean at least nick's one of them you definitely did not need both of those you know so i'm gonna hold my final copy up here look at the track list for side two and tell me what order does it go in starting with tbd tbd stage waitress white discussion and that's it they pulled the next track off of the vinyl pressing. Now, a lot of bands are doing this in the 90s in order to get onto one vinyl. And, you know, vinyl wasn't very cost effective in the mid-90s. It's just cool that they did it. But in order to get it onto one disc, because they didn't want to do a double album, they pulled <laughs> your absolute favorite song on the album oh, off not, of it. Not close not close now here's what's agonizing okay you leave stage and waitress yeah and you pull filler of davidson right right i mean are you out of your mind it's inexcusable um and it frankly it just it does it makes me kind of angry like i knew it would (laughs) i knew you'd get pissed (laughs) tis time to jump into the magnificence of Pillar of Davidson. Shepherd, 
<laughs> yeah, I think if, if you really want to diagnose like the problem with Ed Kowalczyk and, and why live, you know, never really got where they should have gone. I think they just really lacked self-awareness as a band. And I think it's him. I don't blame the other guys to pull this song off of the vinyl and to leave these other kind of throwaway tracks on there. They clearly never, I don't think he really liked this song. They didn't play it live a whole lot. And, um, I just think there's a lack of self-awareness about like when they were good, why they were good. And pillar of Davidson sort of represents like everything good about live working. Yeah. And I don't think like he realized that it's obviously a, a magnificent song. Top 10 all time song for me. Um, easily. I mean, whatever. Yeah. It's like you try to figure something like this out. You're just going to bang your head against the wall. This is an extraordinary song. It took a bit to kind of get to it and understand it. I mean, it's, it's almost seven minutes. It's, it's a hike. Everything. It's a perfect song. Everything's working in terms of the, the singing in the round at the end, in terms of the, the drum usage of the ride. I mean, Chad uses the, the ride symbol as well as anybody in terms of knowing when to splash it, knowing when to bell it. He's all over it. And again, it's a extremely simple. You're talking D G A major chords. This is this is as this is extremely simple. But taking something like this and putting that kind of emotional of a performance around it, and it's one of those songs that I love introducing to people because it's laid on the record, and you know a lot of people didn't get to it. I didn't get to it until you know probably like ten years after this thing came out substantially. Right. In terms of really understanding it. So, yeah, it, it's a it's a special song, uh, certainly to me. But but I think for many that are able to um, either get to this point on the album or revisit it, you you realize how powerful of a song it really is, you know, musically and, and vocally. And there's some great live versions of it out there. I mean, you can track them down. This is everything culminating into a, uh, I think a very meaningful, special song at the time. And even still today, that still gets you uh, when you listen to it in present form. And it sets up the, the, what I considered the last track, the closer, even though there is a sort of hidden, very nineties hidden thing after it. But this one, two punch that you're getting at the end of this record is extraordinary. Well, your pillar of Davidson, my fine brother, is my white discussion. One of the truly great show closers I've ever seen. And I think one of the great album closers in the history of rock music, certainly in the 1990s, white discussion. Oh, that last hit. By the way, Chad Taylor does some really cool guitar feedback stuff, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, 
every piece of this band is important. You know, the beauty of this album is the sum of its parts. There is no doubt about that. And it doesn't, doesn't take a lot of revisiting to realize that. I think my goosebump moment though, and I always wonder if these decisions are Jerry Harrison or if it's Ed Kowalczyk or maybe one of the other guys, but during one of those breaks, when they play the sample of the guy talking, I know you, I prepared yeah, I warned you. I told you, yeah. you what to expect or whatever. I yeah. mean, Oh, I'm all yeah. in that moment. It's know? awesome. Yeah. It's totally awesome. You know, it's this closer is just perfect. It's just perfect. It sort of bottles up the energy, a little bit of the angst without overdoing it. The dynamics, the loud, quiet, loud, the groove. It's a tremendous groove to this song. And that was another element that, you know, Chad's drumming was not just power, which there was plenty of that. There was exceptional groove. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a Bonham-esque kind of a, kind of a hitter, right? In terms of being able to play with power, being able to play with groove. And you see that on this song. I mean, it's, listen, you're not going to get two better closing tracks on any record than you do here. I mean, this is, this is over 12 minutes, two sort of long pieces that are very different directionally, but man, I mean, name another, name another one, two punch to close a record that competes. It it is just besides one, like brain damage and eclipse. Maybe maybe we'll you <laughs> <right>. know <laughs> that was pretty good. No, it was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> See that concludes throwing copper, and as always, we will ask ourselves the question: Does throwing copper hold up? What do you think? You know, um, yeah, yeah. Not like not like crazy good, but it does. You know, there are moments where. There are moments where it's kind of like, eh, okay, yep, this is nineties, right? But but the the melody, the dynamics, and the simplicity of it allow it to persevere and have allowed it to sustain to where it's still a great listen, you know, top to bottom. Takes you in some different directions. There's some ebbs and some flows. I think there's weakness in stage and waitress, as we've talked about. But you know, it, it's um, it's a journey, right? It's a, it's a, um, it's a narrative that um, not every chapter needs to be perfect. Um, are we even going to talk about the last thing, or was that just a throwaway? The stupid country song. Oh, we're not talking about it. Nope. Yeah. Okay. Good. Nope, nope. Yeah, because I know that was just dumb. But um, and you know, I, I've always thought of that as kind of a bonus track, anyway. But um. Yeah, man. I mean, you look at the bookends, you look at the singles, you look at kind of the um, dynamics. It, it's something It's something that you can kind of understand why the band, other than not being able to, Ed primarily not being able to get out of their own way, why it was tough to replicate because everything worked. It's kind of like, you know, it, it's it's where you, you know, sometimes you watch a basketball game where they're just like hitting all their shots and not turning the ball over and just everything's clicking. It, this is, this record is that, I mean, everything just worked. It was produced perfectly at a perfect time where the sum of its parts were clicking on all cylinders. The performances that are delivered are great. The way it's packaged is great. I mean, it was just one of those things where just everything worked and tough to replicate that. And um, you can kind of see why now, but, yeah, I think it I think all in all it holds up 
for a rock album of this era, it's probably going to hold up as well as um, most of the others. So what do you think, Nub? Does it hold up and do you think it matters a bit? I was really impressed by the sound of the album. I think it sounds great. I think it's really well produced. Yeah. It's got a lot of space in it. You know, they didn't overkill with washes of, of guitars. And I think the drums are just produced really well. Bass cuts through nicely. Some good performances on bass for yes. sure. So I think I, I, the songs hold up, of course, because the album is chock full of hits. I think what really stands out though, is that the sound of the album is very good. It's a good sounding record. Jerry Harrison yep. gave him a lot of credit, did a good job. All right, T, we have hit the final cut. So is throwing copper on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust? Or is it headed to the for sale bin? T, where do you have throwing copper? It's so close for me. Um, it, it is certainly in the collection. I am going to give it the nudge to on the turntable. And the reason for that is the closing two tracks, a strong middle, and certainly a, an unquestionably uh, successful, you know, opening. So, I mean, it's, if you kind of divide an album like this, which in the nineties where you had more tracks, longer records, you sort of had to divide them into thirds, first, third, extremely successful, second, third, interesting. And, you know, a couple of really good songs that have held up nicely. And then of course the, the back third, um, has some extremely special moments. So yeah, for those reasons, I'm going to put it on the turntable. Um, it was not a slam dunk to get there, but, but I think that there's enough to kind of push it over the cliff. You got to have it in the collection and it's definitely, it's one of those records you, you will proactively listen to from time to time. It's not, you know, just, just for this purpose or just for, you know, nostalgia or something. It's, it is a good top to bottom listen and probably will be for a very long time. And I'm going on the turntable with this one. Where do you got it? I'm interested to see where you landed. I've got it on the turntable. I think it was important to give it some retrospective listens, right? And just make sure that it's complete enough. I don't love that kind of stage waitress run, but in a weird way, it's it's important because it it just creates an album feel, you know? Um, It doesn't feel like a greatest hits album, even though it could have. Because you do have some things in there that are just a little bit off the beaten path and take you in a different direction. The bookends are phenomenal. In between, you've got some, you know, really memorable, important tracks to the decade on the turntable for me. The only thing is, T, I wouldn't play the vinyl version. You know, I love having it. It's a nice collector's piece. But you want this on the CD because Pillar of Davidson is a obviously a really key part of the record for sure. Yep. This is a CD album. And you know what? It sounds better on CD too. It does. You know, some of, yep. some of that depth and to your point, some of those production elements, um, it, this was, this was produced for CD and, you know, it's one of those areas. Uh, I know for you vinyl purists, you know, sometimes it's sacrilege, but this is certainly an album where I think uh CD is the way to go. Very, very well said. T let's wrap up shop here as we, Figure out three songs that are ringing in your head. What do you got? We got a lot. It's been a while. We got a lot of these to do. Just grab some popcorn. Just sit back and relax. Dolores. Dolores on fire. All right, T, what's in your head? 
Nubs, have you heard of this band Goose? Are you into this Goose thing? I've heard of Goose. I'm not into them, but I've heard of them, yes. Have you like have you like watched one of their shows and stuff? No. You should. You should, because it's kind of a I mean, it's I think it's kind of a thing. Like I I, I think it's kind of a thing for like the next like wave of y- younger sort of jam bands or whatever. But they they are not an annoying jam band. In fact, their musicianship is excellent. And I think you'd actually really like the drummer too. I've been watching them a bit, keeping an eye on them. That they're very good about posting full shows on YouTube and that I mean they embrace that sort of thing. It's not um it's not like bad. So check them out. I think they're going to be huge. So I'll go with Arcadia from from those guys, an interesting band you should check out. Um I'm going to go with one of the uh, John Theodore projects, which was Golden, uh, which also included Phil from Trans Am and uh, Feel This Flow. Great song from Golden. I mean, all that, all that John Theodore, Trans Am, Phil uh, stuff. I'm, you know, just count me in, you know, I'm, I'm all in on it. And uh, thirdly, going to go, I, I guess, since we're in the 90s, I'll go with a song uh, by Cake. I kind of liked Cake. And that's the uh, opener to their uh, record, Pressure Chief. Great, great name for an album, Pressure Chief. Uh, the song is called Wheels. What do you got, Nub? Great name. First is Losing Your Mind. This is by Pride and Glory, Zach Wilde's first non-Aussie band. Really cool song that came up the other day, and I loved it. Landmine Spring by Quicksand off Manic Compression. Really, really, really strong track from Quicksand. And then lastly... Would be, I had a great spin. We earlier talked about Faith No More. I had a great spin earlier of Midlife Crisis. It just hit the spot as it always does. Yeah. Speaking of top 10 songs of all time, yeah. Exactly. T, thanks for taking a dive into Throwing Copper. It was a lot of fun. And we will be back sooner than it took us to do this episode. (laughs) Now that we are reunited and it feels so good. Take care of yourselves and take care of one another. And we will see you on a future edition of Two Twins and an Album. Two Twins and Album. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.